0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from the Book of Exodus, chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put put in it the ark of the testimony, And you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put it in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark. And put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting. Opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Let me pray. Merciful Father, we come before you
0: this morning and we ask that you would bless us with your presence. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. Father, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would um, use me even though I am a sinner, even though I am broken, even though I am a man with um, faulty and sinful desires, that you would speak your word purely and cleanly and clearly through me, um, that people, that you would anoint their ears this morning to hear your word, and they would hear you and not me. Um, I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are studying the final chapter in the book of Exodus. If you're just joining us, we've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus for the past eight months. I'm always thankful at how God uses our sermon series through books of the Bible in very spe- special ways. Um, this is one of the evidences of the truthfulness and the reliability of the scriptures. They never fail to speak to us. This book, 3,500 years old and still speaks week after week after week. They never fail to convict us and to kind of convince us and call us into something greater. And I'm going to say we're living in a day and age where we desperately need to understand the central message of Exodus. We need to know that we as human beings are built for glory. That means we were created by God for God. We were made in a way where the deepest longings of our heart the highest rafters of our intellect and the farthest horizons of our imaginations can only be reached by knowing and loving the God who has created it all. We were created for more than just staring into our phones. We were not created to live off of a constant stream of entertainment. We are meant to know and enjoy God himself in a distinct and particular way, not in some kind of esoteric spiritual sense. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I have this vague sense of spirituality that I get a a little, you know, attaboys occasionally, and I kind of maybe feel like my prayers get heard, and I have this sense of spirituality, but nothing concrete. No, no, no. We were made to have a concrete reality of God and to know him and experience him in an intimate way. We are meant to know and enjoy God himself. We were built for glory and we are by the most glorious one. If we were an engine, you would say that we are built to run on God. Listen, the Psalmist says it like this in chapter 36, verse nine. Listen, he says, this: for with you. He's speaking to God for with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? That means God is what gives our life meaning. What's God is what gives our life substance and depth. God is what gives our life purpose and direction. He is the fountain of all life. Now listen. I doubt very many of us, you, you might not really believe that this morning, you might not believe that God is the fountain of life, and I'm going to tell you, in one sense, it doesn't really matter what you believe, I doubt you woke up, think, woke up thinking that the sun is the source of all your life either, but I'll tell you one thing, you haven't done one thing in your life that hasn't been dependent upon the sun. None of us wake up and go, man, I'm really thankful for the sun this morning, Right? No, no, no. But without the sun, there would be no life. There would be no life on planet Earth. There would be no planet Earth. It would be a frozen rock somewhere, right? You would not be here. Your career would not be there, right? Your education would not be there. Your money wouldn't be there. None of the stuff that you enjoy in this life would be there without the sun. But most of us live our life like we're not dependent on the sun, right? The same is true for God. God is light, and in his light, we see light. The only reason we have existence is because God exists and God gives our life meaning and substance and purpose. He is the fountain of life. He is where true and everlasting life is found. Listen how David says it in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. Listen, in your presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Where our joy can be full is in his presence. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is not some austere judge, right? At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. That means our heart can be satisfied in his presence. His presence is what we ache for and long for. Or in Psalm sixty-three, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul... Thirst for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Listen, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. See, David knew that God was the source of all his joy and delight. Every other joy, every other delight that he experiences in his life are just the rays of the sun, and the sun is the source, right? God is the source of all good things. In his life. And David was a man who knew, listen, when his soul was parched, when his soul was thirsty, he didn't need a new series to watch on Netflix. Okay? When his soul was thirsty, he didn't need more money. I'm out of joy. I'm lacking happiness. What I need is a raise. No. God. When his soul was dry and when he was in a dry and barren land, when he's, when he's hungry and aching for something more, he knew he just didn't need more good times. I need some time out on the river with my friends. I just need some good times. No, he needed more of God. He was thirsty and only God would satisfy David says to be loved by God, to be aware of it, to know it, to experience it, to feel love from God is better than life itself. Listen, we are, I'm going to tell you, you might not even know it. You're thirsty for God. I'm thirsty for God. Our city is dying of divine thirst. Our nation is in a state of spiritual dehydration, and most of the people don't even know it. We are still convinced that there's something in this world that will make us happy. And this is what Exodus has been teaching us. We are all thirsty for God, but in our foolishness and in our rebellion, we go to something other than God to quench our thirst. We go to political causes, and we go to relationships, and we go to sex, and we go to money, and we go to our careers and to our families, and these are all good things that God has given us, but when you go to these things to quench your deepest desires, you end up making a false God out of them. That's called idolatry and idolatry always leads to disappointment and slavery. Why is that? Because these good things aren't God. They don't have the resources and the glory to quench your thirst. And so what happens is called the law of diminishing returns. You, this is something that we get from, well, there's a lot of ways, a lot of areas you can see the law of diminishing returns. One of them is in drug addiction. You go to a drug to get high and you get high and you get addicted and then you have to go back to that drug to get more of it. And then it, it always takes more and more and more of that drug and you always get less and less and less of a response out of it. It's the law of diminishing returns. And this happens in idolatry. You think that a relationship will make you happy. All I need is a husband. All I need is a wife. All I need is a girlfriend. You get in that relationship and you find out that it doesn't. Like it does for a second and then it doesn't make you happy. Ultimately, there's still things wrong with it. You're still not satisfied, you're not quenched. And what happens? A lot of times you start getting controlling. You try to control the relationship more, get more of their time, get more of their attention, make it more about you. You get possessive. You think you need more time or more intimacy, but the more you try to control what happens, the more the other person pushes away and the less intimacy you get. The same thing often happens when we idolize our kids. The more we go to them to quench our spiritual thirst, the more thirsty we become and the more unhealthy our relationship with them becomes. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God. To make him happy. And this is what makes Exodus special. In Exodus, it tells us where and how to find God. It tells us exactly who God is, Yahweh. What he has done for his people, redeemed them from slavery, purchased them as his own. And, and it tells us where and how they can know and enjoy the God their hearts were created for. Now, listen, David understood this and David knew more than the fact that God is what our hearts long for. David knew how to meet with God and how to enjoy God. Do you? Do you? When we talk about glorifying God and enjoying him forever, is that a term that you say, but you have no idea what it means? You have no idea really how to enter into a a relationship with God and know him. Listen, you need more than just knowing that God is the answer. That God is what you need to quench your thirst. You need more than that. Nearly any American that's had a nominal experience with Christianity knows, what's your problem? God. Right? What's the answer? Probably Jesus. You've been around this church long enough. It's probably the gospel. I don't know how or where, but it's probably the gospel. It's probably what I need. See, you actually need to know how to know God. How to meet with him, how to enjoy him and how to have your heart satisfied or satiated in him, how to be ravished by him, how to drop your bucket down into the well of God and pull up enough nourishment, enough refreshment, enough water to quench the thirst of your soul. And today I'm going to show you where and how that happens. We're going to see it here in Exodus 40 and to do that effectively, really quickly. I'm going to have to take a step backward and get us caught up really quick on the story of Exodus. Actually more than just, well, let me just do the whole first two books of the Bible really quick. Okay. Here, we, here, here, here it is. In the beginning, God, what does that mean? God is transcendent. God was never created. God had no beginning. God is spirit. Everything that is created has a beginning. The majority of scientists, astronomers, We'll say that the universe had a beginning. Therefore, if the universe had a beginning, the universe has a cause. God is that cause. God is the one who spoke the universe into being. God has no cause. God is the uncaused causer. That's what it means to be God. There can only be one of them because I'm not going to get into all that. Okay. God in the beginning, God, and then God creates all things. Okay, everything is made good. It's all good, he says, and it's all made for glory. It's made to know him and walk with him and be in relationship with him. And we see this with the first human beings. They walk with God in the cool of the day. That means the fountain of life is right there. They could go to him any moment and get exactly what they need. Everything their heart's desire is there in front of them, but that doesn't last long. Second act of the story is what we call the fall. Adam and Eve, the first humans chose. They used their, let me just say this. Why, how they used their free will that God gave them to love God. They use that free will to choose to go to something that was forbidden. Okay. They choose to go to something other than God to meet this deepest longings of their heart. They choose to go to another well and it goes bad for them. They, their disobedience brings a curse upon all mankind and all of creation. But but most of all, and this is distinct here, God evicted Adam and Eve from the garden. That means they were now separated and cut off from his presence, from the fountain of life. So the fountain of life is here. They are now kicked out of the garden and God puts an angel in front of the gates with the flaming sword that blocks their re-entry back into the garden. If they try to get back into the garden, it will cost them their life. And the majority of Genesis is the long story. Actually, before I go to that, but God doesn't do what we think he should do. God doesn't just kill them all and start over. Right? God doesn't do that. God says, I'm not going to destroy everyone for their disobedience. Oh, that's the right thing I'm I'm going to do. I'm instead going to redeem them. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to fix this someday. I'm going to send someone who's going to fix this and bring us back, bring creation and humanity back into a right relationship with God. Now, the majority of Genesis is that long story of God promising and preparing his people to one day get back into his presence. Then we come to Exodus, and the narrative begins in a really dark place. God's people have been enslaved and oppressed by the biggest, baddest empire on the planet at the time, the nation of Egypt. And they are powerless to free themselves and they're obviously powerless to do anything to get back into a right relationship with God. They can't even get their own freedom. How are they ever going to get back into a right relationship with God? So God, as we have seen over the last eight months, gloriously, supernaturally frees them and then over and over and over God tells them exactly why he is doing it. He says this, When he was telling, remember Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. What God is saying is that he is freeing them so that they can meet with him so that they can know him and enjoy him and experience him. That's what worship is. God has said all along, I am freeing my people so that they can get back into my presence. They can get back to the fountain of life that their hearts are longing for. And God has told them over the last 15 chapters in the majority of this chapter, this is how and where we're going to meet Okay? This is the place, this is the time, this is what it's going to look like, this is where we're going to meet, I want you to build me a tabernacle, tabernacle is literally like a tent, that's all it is, and I want you to, to build it exactly how I tell you to build it, right? We had we set like basically 11 chapters of God in the most boring fashion imaginable, right, that only an engineer or an accountant of some type could actually enjoy reading, right? He details for us exactly what the construction of this tabernacle has to look like, the dimensions and everything. Build me a tabernacle. And if you do it exactly how I say, I'm going to come down and dwell with you. I'm bringing the fountain of life into your community and I'm putting it in this building for you to meet with God, for you to meet with me and have your heart satisfied if you obey me. In chapter 40, that's exactly where It begins. See, listen, everything that was lost in the garden, God is promising to renew in the tabernacle. You lost my presence. You've been cut off from me. I'm coming to town and bringing my presence with me and you can meet with me there. And it's interesting in the first 32 verses of chapter 40, Moses, it says Moses constructs the tabernacle, but this is the key exactly how God told him to do it eight times. It says in 16 through 32, this Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded. So he did. And it just keeps repeating over and over and over as the Lord had commanded Moses, as the Lord had commanded Moses, Moses builds the tabernacle exactly how God commands it to be built. Now, listen, listen, what is the tabernacle? We, we mentioned it a bit last week and get caught up. If you go back and listen to our podcast last week, I'm going to explain it like this. The tabernacle is the pathway to the glory that our hearts long for the path. The, the, the tabernacle is a way back into the heart of the whole universe. The tabernacle is like a portal. I'm going to use that language. It's like a time machine that takes people back to the Garden of Eden where man could walk with God. It's a room into another world. It's the only place on planet Earth at the time that mankind can meet in a tangible, real way with God. Then in chapter 40, verse 33, it says, I'll read it here. Chapter 40, verse 33. This is where we're really going to pick it up. Chapter 40, verse 33. This is what it says. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And look, so Moses finished the work. The work was finished. Now, I, think, I want you to think about this. What does that mean? The tabernacle Was here Moses obeyed God the people obeyed God They constructed it exactly how he said to do it And now the 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 tabernacle is here Mankind now has a way back into the heart of the universe This is huge The people now had a tangible well that they could go to to quench their spiritual thirst Look at verse 34 look what happens then the cloud, that's the glory, they don't even have a way to describe it. The, the tangible reality of the glory of God, the cloud, covered the tabernacle. That's the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, look, well, I'm just going to stop there. This is what the entire book of Exodus has been, has been about. Moses, Moses. Give me 11 chapters on the detail of the tabernacle. And you give me one verse on, and then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You are killing me. He's not writing a script, right? This is a horrible script. If you're making this into a movie, you're cutting out those 11 chapters, right? And you're making it all about this. Everything our heart longs for is visually represented by this glory cloud. And it just drops into the tabernacle. We've called this whole series Built for Glory, meeting God and finding freedom from false gods that enslave us in order to rightly worship the real God whose glory is like no other. We weren't meant to worship anything less. Moses obeys, and when the work of the tabernacle is finished, the glory drops. God moves in and inhabits his tabernacle. Now here's the first answer to our question. Where do you go to meet with God and enjoy him? You go to the tabernacle. David knew this in Psalm 63, two, which is sandwiched between the the scriptures I already read about um, God, you know, pleasures at the, at the right hand and his steadfast love is better than life. This is what he says. David says this, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. David knew where to go to experience the glory. David knew where to go to meet with God, to have his heart satisfied. And now in this moment, I want you to feel this. The people could literally see the glory of God with their eyes. They knew God is in there. I don't know what he's doing in there, but he's in there. The place is full of smoke. And at night, the place looks like it's on fire. All I have to do, if I want to know God, if I want to know the meaning of life, if I want to know the purpose of my existence, if I want to know what I was built for, all I have to do is go through that gate. But just when we think all of their problems are solved, Look what happens. Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, the glory drops. God is right there. And Moses can't go in. There's fire and smoke, but he's unable to go in. See, so many of us know where the glory is. We know that the answer is God somehow, or Jesus somehow, or spirituality somehow, or there's some kind of soul thing that I have, and I realize that I have a soul that's going to live forever, and I know that the answer is out there in the spiritual world somehow, but I don't know how to get it. We don't know how to get inside the tabernacle. We don't have to get in and look upon the face of God, experience the pleasures that are at his right hand. And what Moses knows to step into the heart of all things is to be undone. The glory cloud is so thick that it would kill him if he entered into the glory. Now, isn't this kind of like our situation? I know it feels like my situation often, we know where the glory is. We can sense it, but it's always, it always feels like it's just on the other side of some door. It's just on the other side of some gate. And we are on the outside wanting to be let in. Don't you often feel like your happiness, your greatest joy, your deepest sense of meaning and belonging is just on the other side of some door that you're knocking on and wanting to be let into. Soon as I get married, I'm gonna be happy. Soon as we have kids, I'm gonna be happy. Soon as we have more kids, I'm gonna be happy. Soon as my kids are off to college, I'm gonna be happy. Soon as I get a raise, I'm gonna be happy. Soon as I finish school, I'm gonna be happy. Soon as I get in that neighborhood, then I'll finally be happy. Soon as I can retire, then I'll finally be happy. Now, in one sense, the book of Exodus ends in a spectacular way. The book begins in the darkness of 400 years of cruel Egyptian slavery. And it ends with God coming down in the midst of his people to dwell with them. We see that the point of Exodus wasn't just setting God's people free from slavery and making a nation out of them. The point was that God was coming to dwell with them and they could worship him. They could know him. Enjoy him. But then listen, in another sense, the book ends on the edge of a cliff. God has set them free. God has loved them and forgiven them and shown them his glory over and over and over again. And then God has literally moved into their neighborhood. He has his own tent. And here in an amazing display of glory, he inhabits his tabernacle. Think about this. The fountain of life is just on the other side of that curtain. In his face, is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, in one sense, this is amazing, right? It's right there on the other side of that door. Now, listen, first, this confirms everything that you hoped for. For the Israelites, okay, Yahweh is real. God is real. God does want to be near to us. God will forgive us. God has made a way. God wants to come and dwell with us. Like everything they hoped for. Satisfaction can be found. It's right on the other side there. Joy can be found. Meaning can be found. Transcendence is objectively real. It's right there. Look at it. God has arrived. But another sense. This still isn't enough. See, we want more than just to know That God is real. We want more than just to know that we were made for glory. We want more than just to see the glory and be aware of the glory. We want to go in. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, puts it like this We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. But Moses can't go in between him and everything he's ever wanted. There's a couple curtains. The people definitely can't go in. So in one sense, they are still on the outside knocking on some door that they just can't get into. Now, listen, in one sense, I think this shows us a great picture of the difference between religious people and Christians. Religious people are satisfied being on the outside Knowing a lot about God, but never really experiencing him. Never stepping into his glory. Never feeling God come into them. They're satisfied on the outside. They know all about God. Maybe they even know all about Jesus. But they've never intimately known him. But Christians, this is the difference. Christians have learned how to go in. Christians have learned how to step into the glory and experience the glorious God of the Bible. I'm going to ask you, have you learned that? Are you on the outside hoping to get in? Or do you know how to get in and experience the fountain of life? Now, let me ask you this. What do you think would have happened if Moses would have just moseyed on into the glory cloud. No doubt he would have died. He would have been consumed by it. Listen, there is still an angel with a sword blocking humans from entering into the presence of God. So here we are left hanging at the end of Exodus. God has moved into town. He has revealed himself. But once again, we are unable to enter into him. We are closer to him. Still not able to enter into what we were created for. We were built for glory. And that glory is just on the other side of that gate. But alas, we are mere spectators. Now the good news is that this is the end of Exodus, but this is not the end of the Bible. This is merely the ending to one chapter in the story of God. This tabernacle and the temple that followed it were never meant to be permanent. It was meant to be a sign pointing forward to the ultimate tabernacle, the final temple where God would break once again into our world with finality. And about 1500 years after this event here in Exodus, God Builds another tabernacle. But this time he builds it himself. And he builds this tabernacle in the womb of a young unmarried teenager named Mary. And when the apostle John is writing in his gospel about this baby to be born. He says this. He is the word of God. The logos word of God made flesh that tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was this baby. Jesus was the son of God who tabernacled among us. He was the glory of God made flesh who walked and talked and lived among us. But Jesus here was more than just a new tabernacle. Again, that's outside of us. The disciples could point to Jesus and say, there's the glory. Look, it's right there. He's the new temple. But they still couldn't get inside. There was still a curtain that kept them from the heart of the universe. But then Jesus does the unthinkable. The historical person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, does the unthinkable. He takes upon himself the sins of all of his people. It's as if he is a giant sponge that can absorb all of our malice, lust, hate, and rebellion. And you know what Jesus does with it? He takes it into the glory cloud. He steps behind the veil and carries our sin into the presence of God. And in John 12, Jesus is standing outside the tent. In a sense, he's yet to do this act. He's in Jerusalem. He's entered Jerusalem and he knows what lies before him. And verse 20 says, Jesus says this. Verse 27, Jesus says this. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a loud voice from heaven said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified. He knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he steps into the presence of God, bearing our sins. Jesus will be cut down in the prime of his life. See, no one gets back into the presence of God without getting past the sword of God's just justice. And God says to him, I have glorified my name through your perfect life. And now I will glorify my name Glorify my name through your substitutionary death on behalf of my people. And this is what I want you to see this morning. We were built for glory. But our sin. Keeps us always on the outside. Unable to get into what will satisfy our deepest longings and desires. We are separated from God and we know it. But Jesus. When he takes on our sin and enters into the glory cloud and gets lifted up on the cross to pay the punishment for all of our sin, he gives us access to God. He opens up a way for us to get back into the presence of God. And the book of Hebrews is all about this. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. Hebrews chapter 6. 19 through 20, listen, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that, listen, enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Listen, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, Jesus went into the heart of the universe and it cost him his life. He was crucified there, but he did it as a forerunner. What does that mean? He's going before us. He didn't just do that to get us forgiven. Would you listen to me this morning? I don't want you to live this nominal Christian life that just goes to church and is nice. I want you to know how to get into the glory of God, how to get into the inner place. That's what Jesus purchased for you. He ran in there ahead of you. He gave his life so that you could follow in behind him. Not just go to church and clap and raise nice kids. What your heart is longing for can be satisfied there. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus, but he's not done yet. Chapter nine. I'm just going to do the last few verses. No, I'm going to skip it. Dang it. 10. I don't have that much time. I know. 10. Chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Listen, but when Christ offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, just like Moses, Moses finished the tabernacle says he finished the work. What does Jesus say as he's hanging on the cross? It is finished by a single sacrifice. He's perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified, Christ's final sacrifice makes us right with God has nothing to do with anything we'll ever do in our life. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ. When we put our faith in him, that's, Counted to us, credited to us. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. You know what that's doing? You know what his dad do when he gets home from work? More than likely. Sits down, right? My day at work is over. My work is finished. I'm going to sit down. Jesus Christ at the right hand of God says the work of saving people, the work of getting people back into what they want, getting them access to the the well of life. It's done. I finished it. It's open. And he sits down. He ain't done yet. Let's keep going. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And this I have up on the screen. This is it. I'm closing. I give myself plenty of time to close. I like my good 20-minute close. Here we go. Here we go. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, look at this, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he look open for us through the curtain. He opened it. We're not on the outside looking in. If you're in Christ, the way is open. The pathway is open. The well of life is right in front of you. That is through his flesh. He is the new tabernacle. He is the new curtain. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's the new Moses, he's the new high priest like Aaron. Let us look, let us draw near. Come to the well. If you're thirsty, come to the well and drink, draw near. Don't be satisfied coming to church and knowing the wells over there and thinking, man, it'd be really nice to get some, something to satisfy me. It'd be really nice to help me through this suffering. It'd be really nice to give my life meaning or purpose. No, no, no. He says, draw near, come up to it. Drop your bucket down into the well. There's resources there. Let us draw near with what a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now listen, No, I'm not going to go there. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want you to see a few things here. One, Jesus opened up a way for us into the glory, into the glory cloud, into the presence of God. We can get into this holy place and be in the presence of God. Jesus did it. Now, what does that mean? It comes through the blood of Jesus. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us and took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. So when we believe this, the work that Jesus Christ has done for us in the gospel, our hearts are sprinkled clean. And when we're baptized, our our bodies are washed with pure water. That means we are made fit to be with God. We can now, because of the work of Jesus being credited to our behalf, we can now enter into the holy place to meet with God. And what does he say? He says, with confidence. Confidence. What does that mean? When you understand that the only way you get into the inner place, the only way you get into a relationship with God is the work of Jesus. It gives you confidence. Confidence. You mean, here's the access. Okay, I'm going to do this real quick. The old tabernacle, people are let in eventually. Priests get to go in occasionally. The high priest gets to go to the inner holy place one time a year. But there's all of these things they have to do to get inside. They have to offer sacrifices. They have to offer bread offerings. They have to wash in the bronze laver. They have to light the candles. They have to burn incense. They got to get purified and cleansed. They got to anoint themselves. they have to wear the right clothes. They got to get behind the curtain. Here's the point to get to the presence of God. You have to follow all the rules to get into the presence of God. Okay. You better be fit to get in there. Or you're going to die when you get there. Listen to this. Obey. And you get in. The gospel flips it on its head. Jesus, as the new tabernacle, says, I will bring you in. You come in with me. I make you fit. I make you holy. I make you righteous. And now you obey on the way out. Do you see this? My obedience gets you into the glory. My obedience gets you into know God. And then you know God and you get changed by him from the inside out. And then all of your obedience is on the way out. Your tithing, your giving's on the way out, your love and sacrifice for one another. It's all on the way out. It's not to get you in. And so Hebrews here, the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence that we can draw near to the throne of God. Why? Because it's based on Jesus' work, not my own. I don't go, hmm, how how did I have a quality time with God today or was it less than quality? Because if it was quality, I could get into the presence. But if it was less than quality, I'm probably on the outside still looking in. How's my sin meter? Is it acceptable? Do I have an acceptable level of sin where I can get into the presence of God this morning? Or did I really blow it last night? How's my prayer life doing? Oh. There's no. Standing on the outside, measuring myself, checking my heart. How clean am I? How right am I? Can I get into the presence? I go in with confidence because it's the blood of Jesus that gets me in. It's the righteousness of Christ that gets me in. This is freeing. This brings joy. This brings peace and happiness. And, oh, okay. It's not based on how well we are doing. It's it's based on how well Jesus did for us. Let's keep reading. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's the gospel. It's the word of God. Let's hold fast to it. without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Listen, I don't care if you've been a Christian all your life. This applies to you. Hold fast to the gospel. Why? Because we always drift away from it. We always drift away from it. We start thinking again that I have to obey my way into the presence of God instead of Jesus did it. And so now I'm in and I get to experience God and I obey my way on the, I obey on my way out. We always slip back into religion. Moralism verse 24 and let us consider how to stir one another. That's a, Weird transition. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. First, I want to say this the day, as you see the day drawing near. You know what that is? The day is coming. The day of the Lord is what it's called in scripture. The day where we will not just be positionally righteous, but we will be totally righteous. The day where Jesus Christ will return. And as we read earlier, he'll crush his enemies and he'll restore all of creation back to its rightful place. On the day we will experience the fullness of the glory in God. There'll be no more ebb and flow like we experience here. We will walk with him and talk with him and everything we have ever wanted will come true in him. We will be satisfied. We will be in the glory and we will be made like him. But here's the rub. You have, if you're in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are, you have been made righteous. Righteous. Even though you aren't, you know you're not. <laughs> even though you're not, you've been counted righteous. And one day you will be total. So, counted righteous, even though you're not. One day you will be totally righteous, but there's a gap there. Do you see that? You've been counted righteous. One day you'll be totally righteous. And during this gap, between what, God, what Christ has done for us. And what we've believed. And what Christ has made, made us righteous. Counted righteous. And the day when we'll be finished. So this is called salvation and sanctification. or so, Let's just say this. This is called sanct. This is called salvation and justification. This is called glorification. In the middle. This gap. Is called sanctification. The process of being, becoming more and more like Jesus. The process of. Becoming what we've already been called, and how do you do that? How do you do? What do you do during that gap? Right. This is what this these scriptures here, these last three scriptures, are all about. We're called to hold fast, to stir one another up, and to meet together often. Do you see that? Verse twenty three. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Stick to the gospel. Don't move away from the center. This whole world is going to want you to get off center. They want you to start talking about politics. They're going to want you to start talking about all these different other things. Stick to the gospel. Hold fast to our profession. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another. To love in good deeds, to love in good works. Do you hear that? That's a command for the Christian. Consider. Think about blessing others. Think about encouraging those in your community. Think about stirring them up to do good things. Now, I just want to say that right there might be completely countercultural. Think about somebody other than myself. I'm really hoping the Spirit would tell them to think about blessing me. What else? This is go deeper into community. You've been made righteous. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hold fast to the gospel. Go deeper into community. Yes, the whole world is going crazy and they want you running hundred miles an hour and they want your kids in every activity possible. And you know what? And, and God says, no, 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 that's not what you need. What you need is to go deeper into community. and lastly 25 not neglecting to meet together this is an this is an encouraging statement for a pastor as is the habit of some so Nominal church attendance was nominal even back then. It was normal even back then. He's like, hey, you know what? Some people, they accept the righteousness of Christ, they believe in Christ, and they're like, hey, it's all finished. Christ said it's finished. I guess I'm finished with church. He's like, no, 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 no. You want present grace? You want to know God? You want to step into the glory cloud? You need the scriptures, you need the gospel, you need community, you need the church gathered. There's grace here this morning that you'll never find on your own. Never. The word of God preached, the word of God opened up, the sacraments, the singing, the worship of God's people, seeing children dedicated, seeing people baptized. There's grace. The Spirit's here in ways that's special. Bottom line. He says, don't neglect the gathering. This is where you go. To meet with God, the gospel community, the gathering. When you feel spiritually dry, you go back to the gospel. You go back to God's word. You gather with God's people. And this is it's interesting. The chapter in Exodus ends with God going with him. He says, I'm going to lead you. Just follow me. Follow the glory. Lead me. There's an assurance of God's presence. He's going to be with them on the journey. And just as they could see the glory of God in the tabernacle as they followed God, so do we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as we daily look to him through reading his word, praying to God through Jesus, walking with one another in community, and worshiping with one another in the Sunday gathering. This is what Exodus is all about. This is how you get in. And I pray that this morning, that the spirit of God stirred up at least a thirst for you. Just at least a thirst. To see this glory, to get into this holy place, to know this God, to hear him speak words to you. that tells you you're loved and you're forgiven. And he's welcoming you into his presence And everything you want in life is found there. As as your pastor, this is what I want for you. I don't want to build a big church. I'm just saying, as a pastor, there's more problems for me. Okay. It's a bigger headache for me. I got four kids. All right. That's enough. It's enough. We had 75 kids here last week. Okay. That's a lot of people to, to worry about. That's a lot of things to care about. We've got a lot of stuff going on at the church. I don't, I'm not here just to grow a big church. I want people who've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we get to talk about it together. We get to walk through this life together, right? Other people haven't seen it. You know what? Everyone in our city should think you're crazy. If they don't, I doubt you're living the Christian life. They should look at you. Why are you so close with those people? Why do you spend so much time there? Why do you give your money to that place? You could go on an extra vacation. You could buy a nicer vehicle. What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. And the only explanation for our life is we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're we're willingly giving up anything for it. It's the gospel. I've used my 20 minutes. Let me pray. Father, you're good and you do good. You've opened up a way into the heart of the universe through the blood of Jesus and we can get in and we can speak to you and you can speak to us and your word is living in truth and your word can wash over us and change us from the inside out. And I pray even now that your Holy Spirit is doing that in the lives of your people. Your glory is what we long for. We were built for it. I pray that you would convince us of this Give us more grace as we come to the supper with open, dirty hands. Knowing that it's not our righteousness that gets us in. It's the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood that will be shed for the remission of sins. Christ Jesus your body was broken on the cross, your blood was shed on the cross for our redemption to give us access into your presence. And we come to you this morning for grace upon grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.